What is God going to do about evil? You don't need me to tell you there are loads of, there is loads of suffering in our world. There's the stuff we hear in the news, horrific stories. But it's not just out there, it's, it's in here too. Many, most of us have personally felt the weight of evil, hurt by powerful people, damaged by someone we thought we could trust. And it's fair enough to ask the question, what's God going to do? This is the question raised last week in Habakkuk chapter 1. How long, Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen, or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Have you ever felt this way? I know some of you do because after last week, a few people mentioned that you know what it's like to pray the way that Habakkuk prays. In Habakkuk 1, we hear the beginning of the answer to our question. But the cure that God offers sounds worse than the disease, the Babylonians. Habakkuk responds to God after God says, look, I'm going to send you the Babylonians. He goes, what are you doing? How could you think allowing Babylon to rise up and invade Judah and Jerusalem? How could that be the answer to my prayer? How could their violence be the solution to our violence? This is the big question. And at the start of chapter 2, chapter 2 verse 1, we were left waiting and watching waiting and watching for God to respond. And we've waited. And today we're going to hear God's response. And God's response is worth waiting for. God begins his answer to Habakkuk by getting his attention, by saying, what I'm about to say is very, very important. In chapter 1, it was kind of a personal relate, a personal conversation with God and Habakkuk. But this message, God says, Listen up, this message is for everyone to hear. Even though, once again, part of the message is you're going to have to wait. So read with me from verse 2, Habakkuk chapter uh, 2, verse 2. Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. This is the part of the message that says, listen up. Uh, the tablets are, are to make us think about billboards. Uh, what Habakkuk's going to hear needs to be put up for everyone to read. Uh, the tablets also make us think about someone else who had a message from God and wrote it on tablets of stone. Moses and the Ten Commandments. There's an ancient Jewish reflection on this passage that says something like, Moses gave Israel 613 commandments. Micah, the prophet Micah, reduced them to three. Do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with God. You might remember that. Mitch preached on that passage last year from the prophet Micah. So Moses, 613 commandments. Micah gets it down to two, but Habakkuk reduces it to one. 
We're about to hear the one thing, the one thing God wants his people to hear, a distillation of all of what God requires, what it means for us to know and love God. This is the message that God gives to Habakkuk, what's written on tablets. There's one thing, it's a bit confusing. The one thing, though, is that there are two ways to live, one positive and one negative. Verse 4, see the enemy is puffed up. His desires are not upright, but the righteous person will live by his faithfulness. So what are the two ways? Well, the first way, which is the way not to live, is the way of arrogance. The way of arrogance leads to evil. And the rest of the chapter shows us why arrogance is such a big problem. But the other way, the way that Habakkuk summarises all of God's requirements down to one idea, one sentence, is the way of faithfulness or faith. And Habakkuk says that that's the way of life. Uh, There's a bit of a debate about whether this verse should be translated as faithfulness or faith. And depending on the Bible you have in front of you, you might have one or the other word. The issue is we have two words in English. We have the word faith and we have the word faithfulness. But in the original language, there's one word that captures both meanings. It's actually not a huge difference. Either the righteous will live because they trust in God, they have faith. Or the righteous lives because they trust in God's faithfulness, which is exactly the same thing. Or it means the righteous person is the one who is faithful, as in they continue to trust God. If you didn't catch the difference between those three different meanings, don't worry because there's actually not much of a difference, though it's the kind of thing that gets commentaries written. The point is, and so listen to this, the way of life, real life, meaningful life, eternal life is found in trusting God. That's the one thing. All of the laws of Moses come down to listen to God, believe in him, trust in God. And this faith in God, this trusting in God, isn't just something that happens in your head. It shapes our whole life. The righteous shall live by faith. Uh, This is a well-known illustration, but it's well-known because it's good. You all at the moment have trust, have faith in your chair. Because you've decided that the chair you're sitting in is trustworthy. If you came in this morning and you looked at the chair and went, wow, these are really good chairs. They've got nice, strong metal legs. The, the, um, whatever they, they make the seat out of, some sort of plastic, that looks fairly secure. There's no cracks in it. It's not faded like it's been sitting out in the sun and gone weak and brittle. If you sat there and went, wow, that's a really good chair, and then decided to stand up the back, well, that's actually not faith, is it? That's not believing in something. Maybe in your head you believe that it's a good chair, but it's not putting your life on the line with the chair. When you take a seat, you're actually putting faith in the chair. You're actually resting in it, uh, being confident that it will keep your bottom off the floor. The faith in verse 4, the faith that gives life, is faith that changes your life by trusting in God and his word. That's faith. The opposite of faith is being proud. 
If you're proud, if you're arrogant, if you're puffed up like the bloke in the beginning of verse 4, you don't need God. You don't need to trust in God because you've got someone who's better than God. You've got you. And the result of pride is death. Death for the proud person and often death for others too. Verse 5 says, Indeed, wine betrays him. He is arrogant and never at rest because he is as greedy as the grave and like death is never satisfied. He gathers to himself all the nations and takes captives all the peoples. Wine betrays him. Drunkenness and pride often go hand in hand. I think of the drunk person who, who believes they're the best dancer in the nightclub or even worse, believes they're the strongest in the fight. That pride rarely goes well for them. The picture here is Babylon, either drunk on power or literally drunk, and in their pride, they are greedy for conquering violence and death. And this fits with what we heard last week about Babylon. Babylon is to be feared. Their horses are faster than leopards. They've got superhuman strength. How can God allow these arrogant people, drunk on their power, how can he allow them to be involved with his justice to even sinful Israel? How can he allow them to feed their pride? Well, God's answer comes in verses 6 through to 20. And in these verses, God pronounces five woes against the proud. Five messages of judgment against them. The righteous will live by faith, but the arrogant, the proud, those who do evil will face God's judgment. And the woes pronounce the judgment Babylon will face in history. Now, as we read these woes, in the context of Habakkuk, they are very specifically about Babylon. Habakkuk has asked about Babylon. God's answer is about Babylon. But the way you read these these woes, God doesn't mention Babylon by name. They're not specific in that sense. They're actually quite general. The way these five woes are put together, God is speaking not just to Babylon, but anyone who lives like Babylon, to all of the Babylons throughout history. And so as, I, as we hear what God says, I think there's going to be some resonances to what has happened throughout history, but also today. All right, so there are five woes. Here's the first one. The first is in verse 6. It's about stolen wealth. Verse 6. Will not all of them uh, taunt him and ridicule and scorn, saying, Woe to him who piles up stolen goods and makes himself wealthy by extortion. How long must this go on? Uh, Babylon had gotten rich, but not through hard work. They hadn't made things or grown things and sold it at a profitable but fair price. Their wealth came at the point of a sword, killing and looting, using standover tactics, forcing weaker nations to pay tribute with the threat that if you don't pay, then you're going to cop it. And when it talks about extortion, uh, that's the idea of predatory loans. Sound familiar? Predatory loans. We just had a banking royal commission giving loans to people the banks know can't repay. But who cares as long as I get rich? God's warning is, woe to you who get rich off thieving. And he says that the people you've ripped off are coming for you. 
Verse 7, will not your creditors suddenly arise? Will they not wake up and make you tremble? Then you will become their prey because you have plundered many, many nations. The people who are left will plunder you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Isn't this what we see over and over in history? If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. So that's the first woe. Woe to Babylon, you got rich by stealing and those you've ripped off and those who who you haven't ripped off but are watching what you do and have learnt your tactics, they're going to come and get you which in history is what happened. The second woe is, if you trust in your own safety, it will fail you. Verse 9. Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. When you've stolen to get rich, you know your wealth is precarious. It's precarious because you've made enemies and they're going to want back what belongs to them. It's precarious because if you've been willing to do anything to get rich, if you are so in love with money, then you'll also do whatever it takes to keep it, desperately doing whatever it takes. Those who are rich off stolen wealth are obsessed with safety. Convert your cash to gold and then build a mountain fortress to protect it. God's message is your safety devices will fail you. The very walls of your fortress will be your own undoing. What was built as a fortress too often becomes a prison. So that's the first two woes, and they're both about wealth. Wealth gained by theft, whether that's predatory loans or outright stealing, in the end, it will be your undoing. The third woe is similarly about wealth, but this time it's not about money, but empire. Verse 12. Woe to him who builds a city with bloodshed and establishes a town by injustice. Has not the Lord Almighty determined that the people's labour is only fuel for the fire and that the nations exhaust themselves for nothing? Empires are built by blood, aren't they? Habakkuk was writing about the Babylonian Empire. Uh, Depending on exactly when he was around, most likely he lived to see Babylon start as nothing, just another tribe. But they rose to be the most powerful empire in the world. But today, where's Babylon? No one's, are you afraid of Babylon coming and invading you? No one's afraid of Babylon. What kind of legacy have they got left? They're, they're pretty much forgotten. The only reason anyone knows about Babylon is if they like history, such as the history in the Bible. They put all of this energy and effort into creating an empire that would rule the world and they are nothing. What's what verse 13 says? You build your empire with blood, it's nothing. It's just pointless. This is one of the oft-forgotten lessons of history. Empires come and they go. Now, it would be easy for us now to think about 
you know, the Third Reich in Germany or to think about what Russia's doing in Ukraine or what China may or may not be planning to do. But I think it's much more important for God's word to speak to us and our pride, isn't it? Empires come and they go. Think of the British Empire. For some of us, empire or Commonwealth thinking was a big part of our growing up, a big part of our history. I sang God Save the Queen at my school assemblies. It was once said, the sun never sets on the British Empire. Now, we might like to think, oh, the British Empire, gee, that was good, that were the good days, built on polite diplomacy. Some British gentleman in a suit rocked up to India or Australia or South Africa or wherever it was and said, oh, please join our empire. Wouldn't it be lovely to have you as part of our empire? That's not true. The empire was built on cannons and muskets. As verse 12 says, you do not build an empire without bloodshed and injustice. And what was it all for? No one talks about the British Empire now except as history. Britannia doesn't rule the waves. The sun has set on the British Empire. But there is a kingdom that will cover the earth. Verse 14. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In the 18th century, Isaac Watts wrote the song, Jesus shall reign wherever the sun. Some people critique Watts and think that he was inspired by the British Empire. And I'm willing to admit that probably many, some, many people who sang that song confused the reign of the Lord Jesus with the empire. But if Watts knew the scriptures as well as I think he did, This was a deeply subversive song. There is a kingdom on which the sun will never set, but it's not the British Empire. It's not the King of England or the Queen of England whose glory will cover the earth. It's the Lord Jesus and his kingdom. And in a way, we see this as the gospel begins to spread over all the earth. That's what we were seeing last term in the book of Acts. The gospel starting in Jerusalem just 120 or so believers and then we get the day of Pentecost 3000 and it starts to spread and grow and now there are believers around the globe. People all over the face of the earth who know God's glory. So far there are three woes. Woe to those who get rich from robbing. Woe to those who make their own safety. Woe to bloody empire builders. Uh, The fourth woe is against those who bring shame on others. Uh, Verse 15, woe to him who who gives drink to his neighbours, pouring it from the wineskin till they are drunk, so that he can gaze on their naked bodies. Sounds a bit weird, a bit off, Uh, but sadly it's common whether it's the new students at uni or new recruits recruits in the army, we do verse 15 in our culture, we call it hazing. Initiating people into your friendship circle, it's where people are pressured, they get drunk and are manipulated to do stuff they live to regret. Uh, These days it's even worse because the smartphone comes out, it's captured, put on video, lives on the internet forever. Used to shame and control people. It seems the Babylonians did the same kind of thing but without the smartphone. Forcing people to get drunk, then shaming and controlling them. God's response is, I'm going to turn the tables. 
You'll be forced to drink Babylon, but it'll be the cup of God's judgment. Verse 16, you will be filled with shame instead of glory. Now it is your turn. Drink and let your nakedness be exposed. The cup from the Lord's right hand is coming around to you and disgrace will cover your glory. The violence you have done to Lebanon will overwhelm you and your destruction of animals will terrify you. For you have shed human blood, you have destroyed lands and cities and everyone in them. Babylon wasn't content just to make shame of people but destroyed animals and the environment. It's what empires do. The cup they are to drink is not a literal cup. It's a metaphorical way of talking about God's judgment. And we know that this is what happened to Babylon. In fact, the book of Daniel records the last night of the empire, the Babylonian empire, the last night... The night the empire crumbled, the rulers of Babylon were having a banquet, drinking from goblets stolen from the Jerusalem temple. And it was on that night they were shamed, exposed, conquered by the Persian and Median armies. They thought their empire would last forever. And in a night, glory turned to shame. So far we've heard four woes. Woe to those who get rich from robbery. Woe to those who look to themselves for safety. Woe to those who build empires of blood. Woe to those who bring shame and disgrace on others. These four things, I reckon if you ask most Aussies, if they think they're bad, they'd say yes. They might even say that people who do those things deserve to be punished. Maybe even if they don't believe in God, they'd say, well, if there is a God, he should do something about these four horrible things. But for us, the last one feels different. The final woe, the pinnacle of the woes, the greatest evil God speaks against is idolatry. Verse 18, of what value is an idol carved by a craftsman? Or an image that teaches lies for the one who makes it trust in his own creation. He makes idols that cannot speak. Woe to him who says to wood, come to life or to lifeless stone, wake up. Can it give guidance? It is covered with gold and silver. There is no breath in it. After hearing all the horrific things done by Babylon, and as we think through the ages or even today and the, the kinds of things that echo what, what we've just heard in Habakkuk, you hear of those things, getting rich by stealing, making empires on blood, and it, it, it's gut-wrenching, it makes your blood boil, but idol worship? Seriously? Like, I mean, who cares what religion someone follows as long as you don't bother anyone with it? But that's not what God says. Worshipping idols is the final woe because it's the cause, the basis of all the other evils. When we turn our back on God and worship pretend gods, it works itself out with all the other evils. It goes back to the beginning. And what's the first sin we're told about outside the garden? After Adam and Eve disobey God and are kicked out of God's presence, the first sin we we read about is murder. Cain killing his brother Abel. And what's the trigger for Cain's murderous anger? What gets him? 
What makes him kill his brother? It's idolatry. It's the false worship of God. It's arrogance in the place of faith. We read in Hebrews 11 that Abel brought his sacrifice by faith, but Cain didn't. This is what it says, but by faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. What made it better? Or by faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. And by faith, Abel still speaks, even though he is dead. The arrogant one is puffed up. The righteous shall live by faith. If you think how you approach God doesn't matter, if you think worshipping idols isn't much of a problem, or worshipping the true God but just going through the motions, not doing it with faith in him, maybe Abel has something to say to you. The Babylonians worship idols. They think sticks and stones covered with gold can give power and protection, can speak truth and give life. Trusting in idols cannot do that. Trusting in your own arrogance cannot do that. But the living God can. And unlike idols that can say nothing, the living God who speaks silences the whole earth. Verse 20, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. Habakkuk has raised his complaints. How long, O Lord? Lord, how can you use the Babylonians to punish the sins of your people? God has answered. His answer is, yes, I've used the Babylonians. I've punished sin in my people using this means. But they too have sinned and woe to them. They will also face justice and judgment. And with that answer, the world is silenced. We are silenced. We are silent because only God is holy. We are silent because when we see sin, including our own sin, for what it really is, we realise we have nothing to say, no objections to raise, but we are to stand awestruck, flabbergasted before our God. So back to verse 4. What's it mean to live by faith? in the light of what God has said? That's our question. Uh, To answer it, please turn to Revelation 18. Revelation's the last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 18. Because although in history Babylon was destroyed, you can read about it in the book of Daniel, Babylon was destroyed, woe to them, just as God said. Those who'd been oppressed and conquered rose up and were used by God in judgment. And then we see a cycle, don't we? The cycle continues of another empire, just like the Babylonians, and another, and another. Babylon itself is destroyed, but in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, Babylon rises again. Not literally, Babylon in the book of Revelation isn't a Middle Eastern superpower, it's not Iraq or Iran. It's not some secret code for a particular nation. It's not a code for Russia or China. It's an image, a symbol, a story for any and every arrogant power that sets itself up against God. 
as we went through the woes said to the literal historical Babylon, uh, they reminded us of the corruption of financial institutions or recent empires. Babylon stands for all of these. And just like in Habakkuk, in Revelation, God once again warns and promises of judgment that will come. This time, not only in history, but also fully and finally when Jesus returns. Uh, This is what it says in Revelation chapter 18 and verse 1. Revelation 18, 1. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. What's the message? Babylon the Great has fallen. The question we started with is, what is God doing about evil? The answer of Habakkuk 2 and Revelation 18 is, God will destroy evil. Every power that is puffed up, arrogant, not trusting in God will fall. Everyone who uses power to oppress and control will come to an end. This is really big stuff. It's good news though, isn't it? It's good news for any of us who have suffered abuse or oppression. But it's bad news for those who've grown in power and wealth through violence and theft. This is good news for those who look for justice. Though like with Habakkuk, we will have to wait. The Babylons on our earth will continue to fall, but we are going to have to wait for the final fall. We're going to have to wait for what is promised finally when Jesus returns. Waiting isn't wishful thinking, though. We can be sure of God's judgment, sure that Babylons will fall, not only because they always have in history, but because Jesus is on the throne. Jesus is alive because the crucified Lamb of God is alive and reigning. The Babylons of history will not have the last word. Jesus will reign wherever the sun. This is good news for those who've been oppressed. It's bad news for those who've ruled with violence. But Revelation 18 also has a warning for God's people. A warning for those of us who think we can have a bit of Jesus and a bit of Babylon. Who think we can trust in Jesus, even claim to have all the right theology, but also use power and wealth to grow in our influence through our coercion. God has a warning to anyone who tries that. Anyone who, like we read in Habakkuk chapter 1, does violence within the people of God. So verse 4 continues... I'll get up on the screen. There it is. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. The problem of Babylon isn't that Babylon is out there, but that it's in here. 
God's people have taken on the life of Babylon. There was a problem in Habakkuk's day. The violence he originally talked about was not the violence of Babylon, but the violence in the people of God. It was hard to tell the difference when you read Habakkuk. Hard to tell the difference between Babylon and Israel. The warning of Revelation 18.4 is that this can be the same even for Christians. We get caught up in the, the power plays and corruption of the world. We think we're secure not because we trust in God, but because we've got good locks on our doors and a good insurance policy. Brothers and sisters, we need to know that most of our wealth comes at the expense of others. We can buy nice things cheaply because someone else pays the costs. The wealth that comes from our land, the blood of the land cries out. God calls to us, come out of Babylon to actually live deeply out our faith in God, to say no to the vision and values of Babylon. We're going to look weird to the world, aren't we? We're going to make decisions that look stupid to the people of Babylon. But since Jesus is on the throne, Babylon will fall. Why live in Babylon when it only ends in woe? Faith in Jesus, living by faith in Jesus is the only hope for life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are the God of justice, that you will not allow evil to go unpunished. And we thank you that some of this judgment occurs in history, though some waits until the end when Jesus returns. Please help us wait patiently to keep trust in Jesus. Help us not to be puffed up with pride. Strengthen us to not join in with the ways of Babylon, joining in the corruption and idolatry of the world. Help us to live by faith in Jesus and to hold fast to the end. Amen.